This is TechSnap, episode 362. Hi, everyone, and welcome to TechSnap. This is Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly systems network and administration podcast. We recorded this episode on April 3rd, 2018. It's brought to you by our three great sponsors, Ting, IX Systems, and DigitalOcean. My name is Chris, and joining me every single week is my co-host, the tech, the admin, and the presenter, Mr. Payne. Mr. Wes Payne. Hello, Wes. Hello there, Chris. Hello, Wes. Are you ready to jump into our warm-up story for this week? Oh, am I ever. Okay, then let's start with MyFitnessPal. When they announced earlier this week, well, it was actually Under Armour, the company that owns them, that they had suffered a data breach impacting the information of roughly 150 million users. Initially, to you and I, things didn't seem so bad. At first, it looked like really the only thing that had been exposed were usernames, email addresses, and passwords. And, you know, that's not great. Yeah. But it seems like... At least at, the, at first, it seemed like Under Armour systems were, you know, properly segmented enough that things like birthdays, location information, credit card numbers, sensitive, more sensitive information hadn't been scooped up. Sure. Plus, at least according to the company, the breach occurred in late February and was discovered by March 25th, meaning it did a public disclosure of this information in under a week, which is pretty good. Yeah, that is. That is pretty good. Under Armour was also quick to point out that they were using the well-regarded Bcrypt hashing function, right? So it seems like there'd been a lot of intention behind this. They had some decent security practices in place and were by design using a, you know, a hashing algorithm designed for security. But as always, things aren't entirely rosy here, Chris. While Under Armour says the majority of accounts were were protected with Bcrypt, the remainder weren't so lucky. Uh-oh. Yeah. So in a Q&A that happened a little later about the breach, Under Armour admitted that some portion, I, I'm not sure how much, some portion of the exposed passwords were only hashed using the notoriously weak SHA-1. Mm. Uh-oh. Less than ideal. Just a trip down memory lane, the Ashley Madison breach was 36 million passwords, and they pretty quickly came out and said, yeah, 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 we used Bcrypt, don't worry about it, except for 15 million of those 36 million were incorrectly hashed and were vulnerable to pretty quick cracking. Under Armour hasn't provided any additional information about what transpired with its breach. They do say they're working with security firms and law enforcement to investigate. But right now, it's kind of up in the air. How did this happen? Was it, you know, was it a consequence of the recent acquisition? Was it just upgrade gone wrong? It seems like there's a lot of options. I think the interesting detail in this story that we do have right now is that some of the passwords, and we don't know how many, are still hashed with SHA-1 which might suggest that at some point they upgraded to Bcrypt, and then when the users logged back in, their passwords were rehashed. We don't know. That's speculation. But there could be more than they're willing to admit that haven't gotten refreshed. It's very likely that users just never simply logged back in, but they still use that password in other locations, and it's just never got touched. Yeah, right. Those uh, unfortunate security practices are rather widespread. And it does, I think, also underscore the need for you know companies to really to take this this these security measures seriously, looking at, especially when you acquire a new company, what their practices are and getting that integrated with your existing systems. It's obviously not easy, but especially when you're buying a you know, company that has a lot of consumer information, you're just going to be a target. Well, and, and to sort of pick up on that point a bit more, uh, I wonder if we're seeing a, a theme here on the TechSnap program. Last week, we talked about Orbitz disclosing a breach of the Expedia system. So Orbitz purchased Expedia and then one could assume maybe didn't do much with the infrastructure mm, yeah. and then it got hacked and they had a data breach on their hands from a system they don't really know much about anymore. 
Now we're seeing the same thing here. Under Armour buys the MyFitnessPal databases, brings those systems in place, runs them, and could very potentially just sort of leave them alone. And the reason why I suggest that as a possibility is because I've worked at companies, a couple of different companies who have gone through mergers and we've had to like sort of try to incorporate their data and right. their applications, but a lot of times they become sort of quote unquote legacy and they're available for reference. Right. But otherwise they just sit in the corner somewhere. You don't really think about yeah. them or touch them. And we're not deploying any new products using them. Yes. So it's sort of just supporting an existing customer base. So it gets low priority because it's not new revenue generating and uh, they I get neglected. Yeah, I think that's a lot more common than anyone would like to admit. Staying within the theme of leaks and breaches, PaneraBread.com has leaked millions of customer records. Yeah, the website for the American chain of uh, sandwiches leaked millions of customer records, including names, email addresses, physical addresses, your birthday, and the last four digits of credit card numbers for at least eight months before it was yanked offline uh, two days ago. No, yesterday. Before it was yanked offline yesterday. You may be wondering, why does Panera Bread have so much of that information? Well, turns out uh, most of their locations you can order online, right? So then, of course, you're going to fill out all your information, your credit card information. Then, in this case, that was just available in plain text from their website and appeared to include records just for anyone who had signed up for an account. Wow. Just plain text up on PaneraBread.com. Yeah. Krebs learned about the breach after being contacted by security researcher Dylan Houlihan, who had initially notified Panera way back in August 2nd, 2017. He shared a long message thread between Houlihan and Mike Gustavision, Panera's director of information security. And it appeared that, you know, initially they sort of dismissed Houlihan's report as a likely scam. After a week or so, it does seem to suggest that the company had validated his findings and were at least claiming to be working on a fix. But then eight months of time transpire and the problem never gets fixed. And Houlihan just sort of sits there monitoring the situation, checking in to see if it's getting better and just gets more and more frustrated. I think he eventually got to a point where he had to tip off Brian Krebs because they were just doing nothing. Yeah, so all this time, these records are just sitting there in plain text on PaneraBread.com. And it can just be indexed, crawled, searched, pulled down by automated tools with basically no roadblocks. Some of the customer records include unique identifiers that increment by one for each new record. So it's also super simple for someone to just scrape every single record and you, don't even, you, you know you got them all. The format of the database also lets anyone search for customers via a variety of data points, including my phone number. So if you want to do some more, you know, structured searches, you don't even have to pull all the data down. You can go look right on their website. There is some good news here, though. Uh, after Krebs spoke with Panera, the company briefly took the website offline, and as of today, the site's back online, and that data is no longer available. Subsequent speculation and link shared by Hold Security, a research firm, indicate that the data breach may be way larger than the 7 million customer records that Panera has initially copped to. We don't know yet, and the vulnerabilities also appear to have extended to Panera's commercial division, which serves a lot of catering companies. That's for sure. There's a second half to the story, and that is now the security researcher who's spoken out on Medium and his blog post, No, 
Panera Bread doesn't take security seriously has gotten a ton of traction this week. So Panera Bread had to make a bunch of public statements. The media picked it up. And one of the poll quotes from the press release was, we're sorry and we take security very seriously. And apparently that quote is what triggered the security researcher who found this because in his estimation, they didn't do anything about it for eight months. They didn't really take him seriously. And it was designed incredibly poorly to begin with. That does not suggest taking security seriously at all. So he had to push back. He goes to Medium, just tosses tons of email threads on there, puts everything out there in the public domain. And Panera Bread comes across looking a bit negligent here. But I, I would suspect that this is just one example of what is the norm. Taking orders online might seem relatively trivial, but when you're the scale of a company like Panera Bread or you know any business that size, or if you just have a lot of personal information, it seems like you really like this is something you need to think about. You need to think about how do you engage the security researching community and not just when it's a big name that that you know that you know you'll get in trouble about. It needs to be like an honest, legitimate process where you have procedures set up and you know that like, yeah, sure, you probably will get scammed. That's just gonna happen, but it's a it's a necessary evil in this system. Yeah, I think for businesses, they have to internalize a process and a procedure. So when a researcher emails them and says, hey, I found this vulnerability involving your customer data, that business needs to then start a process where it's it becomes a task who's assigned to somebody to respond to that individual, engage with them, and also start the process of verifying their findings and document the entire thing from beginning to end. Because if it turns out to be true and it goes public, every move you make from the moment you've gotten that first email becomes scrutinized by the public, by the media, and you've really got to have something that is cauterized in your business so that way everybody knows what to do. Because what happens, and this is something we've talked about before on this show, is a lot of times these people just don't get any response at all. And then they get angry. And then they tend to, not always, but they tend to pop off on a blog post somewhere and uh, release way more detail than you would like. Right, we get less responsible disclosure yes. and more time before actions can be taken. And you can see here with Panera Bread, it seems pretty clear that when this PB researcher contacts them, they don't take them seriously at all. And then when Brian Krebs contacts them, they, they react within minutes because it's a name they know, they know he has a public uh, um, reach. And that's embarrassing. Like that has to be addressed before it gets to that point. Yeah, it, it really does. and. You know, it, it may not seem like you're a technology company when you're a sandwich company, but if you're running a website, you are. And these days you can't have tech without security. ixsystems.com slash techsnap. Go there to support the show, learn more about IX, and you can grab their white paper. IX Systems is focused on technical excellence and your satisfaction. They know how to build products around open source solutions, and they have received a number of awards and industry accolades. In fact, go check them out. It's pretty impressive. ixsystems.com slash awards to see all of those. ixsystems is the light at the end of the tunnel. If you've been fighting with horrible, expensive, kind of slapped together hardware from all of the different vendors out there, where they have a department that works on one part and another department that works on the other part, and then they ship a vendor's OS, you know that doesn't work anymore. Things have just gotten too complicated. IX Systems has experts across the entire chain, from the hardware partnerships to the open source projects, and they'll provide you with white glove service at every single level, from the purchasing part to the putting it in the rack part. Nobody does it like IX. 
ixsystems.com slash techsnap. Go there, learn more, and find out why so many different organizations like NASA and many others use IX Systems for their infrastructure. For just a small office to a large enterprise and huge compute infrastructure. ixsystems.com slash techsnap. If you thought Meltdown was bad, unprivileged applications, being able to read memory at speeds possibly as high as a megabyte per second, definitely not a good thing. But that was nothing. Meet Total Meltdown. This all stems from a Windows 7 patch, also affecting Windows Server 2008 R2, back in January. It stopped Meltdown, so that's a good thing, but it opened up a vulnerability that is so much worse. It allowed any process to read the complete memory contents at gigabytes per second. Oh, that's way better than megabytes. Yeah, and it was possible to write to arbitrary memory as well. Oh, you get write access to? The whole thing. It's everything. No fancy exploits were needed. Windows 7 already did the hard work of mapping in the required memory into every running process. Exploitation was just a matter of read and write to already mapped in process virtual memory. No fancy API calls, no weird system calls, just read and write. Okay, so that's uh, pretty basic then. Yeah, getting a little deeper, the user slash supervisor permission bit was set to user in the PML4 self-referencing entry. Oh, okay. This made the page tables available to user mode code in every process. And that's the part that's that's unusual. Normally, the page tables should, they should be accessible only by the kernel. The PML4, you say? Yeah, that's right. PML4 is the base of the four-level in-memory page table hierarchy that the CPU memory management unit uses to translate the virtual addresses of a process into the actual physical memory addresses that are then referenced in RAM. Oh, okay. I, that I, I barely follow. Now, Windows has a special entry in this topmost PLM4 table that references itself, the so-called self-referencing entry. In Windows 7, that entry is at a fixed position, though it's randomized in Windows 10. This means that the PML4 will always be mapped at that address. This is normally a memory address only made available to the kernel. But since the permission bit was erroneously set to user, any user mode process could access the PML4 and the self-referencing entry. Once they had read and write access, it's just trivial to gain access to the complete physical memory unless it is additionally protected by something like extended page tables, which are used for virtualization. Basically, all you had to do was write their own page table entries into the page tables, and then you can access any physical memory. You can tell if your system is vulnerable, if you have a Windows 7 system, if it's patched with 2018.01 or 2018.02, you are vulnerable. If you haven't patched since December 2017, normally not advisable, or if it's patched with the 2018.03.29 patches, then it, then it is secure. There's a bit of an irony in this, that if you haven't patched since December, you are a little bit more secure in this particular regard right now. Whoops. This week on the TechSnap program, we're doing an introduction to Terraform. It's an open source tool that lets you manage infrastructure as code. So Chris, previously we've had a few chats about configuration management. The idea being, you know, you really can't scale 
systems if you're if you're having to do a bunch of one-off configuration if you're going to manually manage state on your servers doesn't lead to sameness it makes things much harder to administer right and so that's where tools like puppet and chef and ansible come in so yeah. that you know you can you can transform that configuration into code you can keep it in version control you can have a single source of truth for what's running on those systems makes it easier to audit all kinds of benefits right but what do you do about the layer below that you know you know sure you're going to you're going to run the chef configuration but where where do you run it you have to have an os you have to have an os right you probably need a virtual machine or some some you have some system running somewhere yeah terraform helps answer that question terraform's really a, a tool built for the modern cloud era right where a lot of what you might have set up in a traditional data center has been abstracted it's it's kind of at a higher level or it's provided by api calls or a fancy gui that you can access on the web so it's no longer send the tech over to the data center install the new switch it's create a new vpc in aws and in any of these large services they have a set of apis available that you can program for right yeah so the terraform is sort of plugging into some of that so would i use terraform for on-premises deployment no, uh, by and large, you wouldn't. If you were running something maybe like OpenStack, right, and and you've already built your own infrastructure as oh, a yeah. service setup, then yes. But Terraform really plays, um, you know, it needs these this rich API layer to hook into. So AWS, DigitalOcean, any of the major players? Yeah, so Terraform has this notion of providers, and a provider is able to provide these resources to you. And that's one of Terraform's main advantages. There are other, you know, AWS has CloudFormation. A lot of the big services have their own version of this. And one of Terraform's main selling points is it lets you orchestrate things across clouds, right? It's not limited to one. It has pretty much all the, the heavy-hitting AWS elements. It has things in Azure. It has things for OpenStack. So it doesn't, if you have those kinds of technologies already in your organization, you can use one tool to access all of them. And where does my Terraform server live? Okay, so that that that's one handy thing about Terraform. It's a Go application. It's open source. You can go check it out over on GitHub. It's pretty popular. It's got, you know, tons of stars, lots of contributors. It's development at a steady, rapid pace. Um, like a lot of a lot of HashiCorp tools. You may know them from things like Packer or Vagrant, okay. um, which are, oh, okay. are both, you know, tools that are used commonly in the industry. Um, as a Go application, it, it can compiles down to a nice static binary. So you basically just go download a zip file, extract it, and you have a Terraform binary available to you. You just run it wherever you want. Yeah. And now, obviously, there are, you know, depending on your organization's need, the scale that you're operating with, you'll probably want to set this up with Jenkins or other, you know, continuous automation tooling if you if, if you want to go to that level, that's all available. HashiCorp also sells Terraform Enterprise, which has some some of these niceties built into it, some systems around that. Um, okay, so but, a pretty traditional setup we see these days. Right, but but you can just get started with the simple Go tool. Uh, so like, you know, if right here at JB, we're looking at maybe refreshing some things in the infrastructure. I think Terraform is a great tool for that because a lot of applications and services these days, right, it's not... Sometimes it's just, okay, yes, I'm running Nginx on one box. But if you're doing anything at scale or in production, you're going to at least have two. You maybe you're going to have auto-scaling groups. You're going to have separate VPCs. You're going to have databases configured. You're going to have you know, distributed key value stores. All these services that stack up, that can be hard to replicate. Maybe you just have like a wiki page where like, okay, first, go log into the console. Yeah. Click through this series of six steps. Right. Right. And so, or a Google Doc. Or a Google Doc. Right. Yeah. That's a common thing that we see. Yeah. It's got to be better than that. Yeah. Right? Yeah.
do.co slash snap. Go there and sign up for a $100 credit. That's good for 60 days after you create a DigitalOcean account, and then you can really get cooking. DigitalOcean is simplicity at scale. They're on a mission over there to simplify cloud computing so the developers and their teams can spend more time building software that changes the world. If you want to try something out from going to full-blown production, the DigitalOcean infrastructure has got you covered. Rigs that are as low as $5 a month. Everything's SSDs, gig of RAM, multi-core processors, 40 gigabit connections coming into the hypervisors, and eight data centers all over the world. Scratch that. Now 12 data centers all over the world. Breaking news right here. That is impressive. 12 data centers all over the world. Breaking news from DigitalOcean. You can check out more at do.co slash snap. Take advantage of that $100 credit. And then after you've deployed a system, check out their documentation. You know, recently here on the show, we've been talking about Memcached. Well, they've got tutorials on how to properly configure and secure your Memcached setup on CentOS, on Ubuntu LTS, on Debian, lots to choose from. Just go over to do.co slash snap to get started. Try out my three cents an hour system. That is my favorite rig. Play with the block storage. You're gonna be impressed. do.co slash snap. So Terraform infrastructure as code, does that mean I promatically deploy infrastructure? So I, I build out something using their language and I always get the same exact results? Exactly. So you get to get started, you just start making, uh, you know, main.tf, which is which is going to be a Terraform file. It's written using the HashiCorp configuration language, HCL, kind of your, you know, a fairly standard, like a, like a simpler, easier JSON standard sort of algal braces style. Um, you'll see it. It's, it's pretty much just allowing you to set up a, a bunch of different variables and declare resources. So it's a very declarative language. And the idea being that you can then build up all of your infrastructure from scratch and have it versioned, version controlled, and automatically deployable. So this gets me a system up and running from scratch, but does it then maintain my configuration? Is it essentially a configuration management tool as well, or am I still using traditional like tools such as Chef for that? Yes, yeah, so it's really focused on that base layer, but it does have a notion of provisioners, so you can execute you know, a local shell script or a remote shell script. It plugs in with tools like Chef or Ansible or Puppet. Um, so a lot I of things have- use Terraform to deploy my Chef. Yes, exactly. So it. Terraform lets you deploy the resources you need, then you can layer on additional layers of configuration, runtime management, and and have everything work all from, you know, one you know, a couple a couple github repos or something like that and that and that that's where it's really helpful and it does to answer your other question it does help you you know maintain that infrastructure as well so one thing that terraform has that's somewhat unique is a planning step and it generates what they call an execution plan so you type terraform plan first off go just go type terraform in it that's going to download any modules you need kind of get your state file set up um then you, you know, then you can go into your Terraform file and probably the easiest thing to do is set up, you know, you just start playing. If you're using AWS, that's easy. If you're using DigitalOcean, you basically say, I'm using that provider. You configure some credentials or you can have it, you know, automatically look for, you know, normal dot files or environmental variables. And then you just declare your first resource. So an easy one is like just an AWS EC2 instance, or you could start up just a DO droplet, right? Start with a basic one. And then you run Terraform plan. And Terraform is going to output a plan detailing exactly what changes it's going to make. And so in their parlance, you essentially are 
capable of previewing your infrastructure changes before you actually deploy them. You see the results before you hit the commit. Yes, exactly right. And that lets you do things too, like you can get you know some consensus on things. You can generate that plan from some changes in a PR and then send that out to a distribution list to get review. You can have automated systems do some checking on it. There's, there's all kinds of options. That is nice. And then you can then feed that plan back into Terraform to have it actually go execute. Another thing Terraform has that's somewhat unique is it as it's building these plans, it does that by building a graph of all your resources. So it can use that to paralyze things when, you know, when there aren't dependencies, and it makes sure to tear down things and spin things up in that automatic dependency management, sort of something, you know, like System D does or other init systems. Yeah. You need to know how those are related. Terraform yeah. has that knowledge if you do it right. Yeah, and so it has to know, in a sense, if it's going to spin up systems that are dependent on a database or a backend storage, it has to know what's dependent on each other. Yeah, right. And there are some cases, right, where like maybe your app has a dependency that's not at the Terraform layer, mm -hmm. so it also lets you add those manually if you need to sort of fix the uh, graph up to make it work. Very good. I was just reviewing some code samples on their site, terraform.io, and it looks pretty straightforward. In fact, they have a, an example here where they're setting up a DigitalOcean droplet. They give it a name. They say how much memory, what image that DigitalOcean already makes available they want to use, and uh, the domain name for it, the type of IP address, if it should be IP4, IP6, and uh, sets an A record. And it's all clear. I'm reading it just right here. And it would be easily uh, templatable. Like I could just have a template of this, then I would just tweak it and spin up a system pretty quick. I, reading that, I, there's not a single line in this code example that doesn't make sense to me. Yeah, you're right. It, I mean, it really is pretty simple and they have a crazy number of providers right so maybe you're using alibaba's cloud maybe you're using the oracle cloud um and a lot of things that aren't necessarily like traditional infrastructure as a service thing so you can configure datadog uh console they have a general dns thing so you can configure dns entries and have it just use basically the equivalent of ns update to send that to any old dns server as well as some like better integrations with stuff like power dns uh openstack as i mentioned even things like pagerduty so there's pretty much if there's anything that can lend itself to a declarative style of configuration, Terraform probably has a provider for it. One way where it can get sort of complicated is that, you know, a lot of times, especially on some of the bigger cloud providers, when you've configured a full VPC, you know, multiple multiple availability zones, you've got all kinds of databases. Maybe you've also, you know, you also end up probably wanting to have a production instance, a QA, maybe a staging environment as well. That can get really big, especially if you have it in one file. Um, a common problem you'll see is when you have this sort of monolithic configuration too, is you have to be careful. The, the reason Terraform has all those, you know, niceties in terms of, of graphs and execution plans is it is declarative and sometimes it will want to recreate things because it can't know the state of it or it doesn't have enough information. So you want to, you need to watch out for that. It can be easy, especially as a beginner, to get yourself somewhere where you're trying to make just a change to one environment, but due to some, you know, some dependency somewhere you didn't realize, maybe it's making a change to production. A lot of times too, you want to keep things, you know, you don't want to repeat yourself the, the dry principle they, they often call it. So you don't want to have to just manually copy and paste a whole bunch of code and try to, you know, make tweaks across a large, you know, maybe thousands of lines of configuration. Mm. That's where Terraform modules come in. Okay. And modules are a simple, simple concept. They have actually a lot of relations sort of to just a normal, you know, programming function where you provided a set of, a set of inputs and it provides a set of outputs. And Terraform has actually a module repository that's that's open to the public. Yeah, with registry, a, I think they call it. Yeah, the, the Terraform module registry. Yeah. And there is a ton of great stuff in there, including like some fully blown setups. Like if you want to get Kubernetes going on AWS, yeah, I saw Terraform that. can just get that spun up for you. They even have a provider. Now, things like Helm charts are more popular for that, but you can use Terraform to configure things, both the underlying infrastructure for Kubernetes and settings within Kubernetes itself. 
Yeah. Um, modules let you kind of abstract that. And it's a great way too if you have, you know, custom configs, right? So you're using Chef, you're spinning up EC2 instances maybe with Chef to provision them. You can wrap that up in a module. And so you can set a bunch of defaults and then allow users to provide inputs to tweak that. So you can really have a lot of reproducibility. You can separate that out. That module can leverage other modules, so it's it's really very mm, flexible. Hmm. Yeah, and it looks like you could have uh, you could actually submit your own module to the registry, and then they they'll verify it and they go through a process to vet it. But it does seem like you could also roll your own in-house modules that aren't necessarily submitted to the registry that are just useful. That's nice too. Yeah, and there's tons of ways to get them, right? So when you declare a module, a lot of times it can be like just a path on disk, or you can point it to like a GitHub repo, ah. and Terraform in it is just going to go fetch all that for you, pull it down, and then it, it pretty much just works. That's impressive. Yeah, yeah right? Uh, one key benefit here, too, that we haven't talked a ton about is that not only does it make this easy declarative version, but it lets you redo things. You know, suddenly you, you're suddenly like, oh, right, well, now we need to go run in Ireland. Okay, AWS is there. We can do that. You don't have to go try to recreate your other environments from scratch. You have this already configured. You can just spin up a new one. Or if something goes wrong, you know, and you need to tear things down and, and build it back up, you can do that too. One particularly example uh, I think that's pretty powerful of Terraform is recently the Password Service 1 Password. Well, they sent out a rather provocative tweet, something in the lines of, hey, 1Password servers will be down for the next few hours. We're recreating our entire environment to replace CloudFormation with Terraform. Wow. It's like creating a brand new universe from scratch. And that's really, that's what it is, right? They they basically <laughs> tore down all of their systems and they rebuilt it with Terraform. And so that whole thing, it took them about two hours, 39 minutes. Two hours of that time, that was just the database migration, like exporting all the old data and then importing it back in. So the rest is like 40 minutes of tearing down, spinning back up. They have a, they have a full blog post on that. And it's, it really does exemplify some of the some of the reasons maybe you are interested in Terraform over CloudFormation, the configuration language. They've got some good examples there. The configuration language and CloudFormation is basically JSON, so it's not super pleasant to work with. Plus, it's very, you know, it is AWS specific. It doesn't have these other outside providers. So that, it's really just a great case study of what Terraform can do and really the advantages you can get to using it. Hmm. It looks like I have a little after show reading and you can too. TechSnap.Systems slash 362. But you've had a chance to play with Terraform a bit yourself, yeah? Yeah, you know, I'm relatively new to the Terraform world. I've been using it for the past couple months, and already it's allowed me to make things a lot better. But I'm curious if, if anyone in the audience is already using it, has any experience, or interesting stories. I'm particularly interested if you're using any particular modules, or you've had a lot of success rolling your own modules. It seems to me that modules really enable... Um, a remarkable flexibility for the Terraform model and are kind of a sweet spot between infrastructure as a service and a platform as a service. So, you know, maybe you're using something like Heroku. They manage a whole ton of stuff for you. Simple, easy deploys. That's all great. A lot of times, though, you you know, when you get to a certain scale, that stops working. You need settings tweaked that you don't have access to because that's managed as part of the platform. But if you're using Terraform modules to provide some of those things, right, maybe you need you need a console server, you need a DNS server. Well, Terraform can help you get there pretty easily, especially if you use a pre-made module. But you then have access to that the source of that module, right? So you can, you can fork it, you can tweak it. That's all an option. So you can start with same defaults that a lot of these modules provide and then go all the way to full custom, full-blown configuration. TechSnap.ting.com. The average Ting bill is just $23 per phone per month. Why? It's $6 a month for the line, and then your usage on top of that. Your minutes, your messages, your megabytes, that's Ting. It's smarter than unlimited. You use less, you pay less. 
If you have Wi-Fi where you're, where you're working or when you're at home, guess what? You just use the Wi-Fi service and you don't use any minutes, you don't use any data, and you don't pay for any of it. If you need an emergency phone, a backup phone, or an on-call phone, why pay for hundreds of minutes you're never going to use? TechSnap.ting.com. Take $25 off a device or get $25 in service credit. Check out the Moto X4. $274 out the door, no contract, no termination fee when you go to techsnap.ting.com. The Moto X4 has support for CDMA and GSM, which Ting does too, so you can use whatever works better in your area. It's got a 12 megapixel camera. It's IP68 water resistant. They've got a great control panel, excellent customer service. You're going to love it. I've been a customer for over four years now, and I'm never switching. I love it, and you will too. techsnap.ting.com. Thanks for going to techsnap.systems slash contact and sending us in your questions, your feedback, and your follow-up. Last week, we put the call out for advice to aspiring new sysadmins to get in the industry. And we've gotten a couple. I think we've gotten three in total. And so what I want to do is sit on it for another week. And I'm sorry if you were looking forward to this segment because I have gotten a couple of notes from some of you who are really looking forward to it, but we really want to do it right and really definitively answer this so we could still use a few more submissions, techsnap.system slash contact. And I'd like to specifically put a call out there to anybody who's been involved in hiring. What are you looking for? Because our end goal here is to get our smart audience hired and we want to give them tips to get in the sysadmin or, or IT field in general, things they need to know, things they need to learn, that kind of stuff. And especially from anyone out there who's done any hiring, we haven't heard from anybody that's hiring techsnap.system slash contact. What are you looking for? Let us know. But in the meantime, Mr. Wes, we do have a bit of follow-up here in the feedback segment. So we'll get to the sysadmin job stuff next week. We will really try to, because I know, I know some of you are looking forward to it, but we want to do it right. But check out this. Came across a little tool this week that's totally in line with what we've been covering recently on the show, DNS rebinding attacks. Well, now, now we all get to play with DNS rebinding attacks thanks to the who now? GitHub, a uh, little, uh, well, I guess it's a project. It's just something new. It's not really big, but it looks pretty cool. What do you think? I like it. Who now DNS server, a malicious DNS server for executing DNS rebinding attacks on the fly. <laughs> Who now lets you specify DNS responses and rebind rules dynamically using domain requests themselves. How cool is that? Wow, that's super handy. We have talked about it kind of kind of a lot lately and yeah. it is a you know it is a fairly prevalent prevalent thing these days. Yeah, I think and like I said last week we're just going we're going to be hearing more about it and here's another example because they've got just easy to understand readable examples on the GitHub page of how to do this. This is going to this is going to become more and more common knowledge. Yeah, definitely. And hopefully this can be useful to people who are trying to, you know, maybe test some apps or make sure that their own applications are not vulnerable. Absolutely. Yeah, you can run your WhoNow server in the like on a VPS or you can run it on a a local box in uh, in a VM. It's uh, it's an NPM module. So, it's pretty easy to get going. And that brings us to the end of this week's program. Thanks so much for tuning in and you can grab every week's episode over at techsnap.systems/subscribe where we've got links to everything. Links for everything we've covered in this week's episode, all of our show notes are easy to find at techsnap.systems/362. If you want to reach out to us individually throughout the week, hit me up on Twitter. I'm at Chris LAS. I'm at Wes Payne. And the whole network is at Jupiter Signal. Thank you so much for joining us on this week's program and see you next week. Next week.